We are doing a series called The Struggle is Real, where we're thinking about the fact that 2020 is a very hard year. I know for me, I wouldn't have said necessarily that I knew what the hardest year of my life was before this, but now I know, and we're only six months in. So much about life has changed during this time. One thing that I'm doing a lot more, and you are as well, is that we're staying home more. And I just had a conversation with Mandy, and I'm very thankful. I think our relationship has gotten better during this season. She would have to answer that uh, herself. But I think it's gotten better. And I know for some that's not true. And if uh, that's true of you, uh, let me know. And I'd love to help you out and, and support you in that. And I'm thankful for our relationship during this time. But a few days ago, I said to her, you know, I just realized that we haven't had a day apart since February because I do travel some and she also does uh, for work. And she said, yeah, I just thought about that a couple days ago. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, that we both had that thought around the same time and that she slightly beat me to the punch. But that's happening a lot. Our lives have gotten very different in a lot of countless ways. Because 2020, the struggle is real. And I hope that during this time, you're learning some things about yourself. And we're learning some things about ourselves as a nation that we will apply moving forward forever. The prophets, I think, would call us to do that. In the prophetic books, which are in the second half of the Old Testament, some of them happen as prophets rise up, as Israel is, is in charge in a very strong kingdom. Then sometimes they are written after the people have been in exile, but the prophets are always saying, remember the poor and the oppressed. This is what your calling is. This is who you are supposed to be as the people of God. So for example, we have the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter five, verse eight, Isaiah says, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. This is an indictment on the rich people who just buy up space and more space and more space until those who once owned that land don't have it anymore. In the time of Isaiah, there was a group of people who had very much wealth and power, but it was a very concentrated group. And only a few had it. it might sound a little bit like today. And the prophets come and remind the people that they need to seek something different with their lives because that is who God has called them to be. Something that I think is very helpful from the prophetic books is a sense of communal guilt. Because as we have seen some really hard things during the season, we are starting to think about racial injustice and what that means for our friends of color and those of us who, who have some power and can do something with it. As we think about that, I think oftentimes we just want to raise our hand and say, well, I'm not a racist or I'm not this. We quickly go to that place. But the prophets would help us reclaim something important, this sense of communal guilt. That at this time, we would say, yeah, I'm sad. And there's a sense of guilt in me because of the way that I have participated in systems, whether passively or aggressively, that create injustice in our world. And we as a community are mourning that. Part of the way that we think is often just very individualistically, that it's just us on our own island. And I have friends who would say, oh, I just love everybody everywhere. But I try to often remind people loving everyone everywhere is a great way to love no actual real people around you. 
And if you are somebody who is very open and, and very loving and someone who wants to accept all people and, and be part of a solution, it's better for you if you would actually come and be part of a community that is trying to do that. It's not super helpful if you're just this like non-racist person off by yourself somewhere. That's better than being a racist person off by yourself somewhere. But we need you. We need you to come and participate and come be part of creating a better world. We don't need you off by yourself. One of the things that happens, I think, is we start to think about weighty topics like racial injustice or as we think about coronavirus and how long this is going to affect us as we feel this, this weight and this difficulty and it's hard. And at some points, I think we're not all that tough and used to hard stuff. We've been very blessed in the way that we live. I think of some comments that I saw on an article that was talking about the Bridger Wilderness, which is um, a, a site in Wyoming. And here's a picture of it. It's a very beautiful place. And they put a comment box for people to give their feedback on their experience in the Bridger wilderness. And it was fantastic to see some of the things that people said. They said, there's too many rocks in the mountains, too many bugs, please spray wilderness. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid trails that go uphill. Escalators would help on the steep parts. Chairlifts needed to get wonderful views without hiking. I think some of those perhaps were jokes, hopefully. I think that's often how we live our lives. We want the Instagram picture. We want to have the lake behind us or up on top of a mountain without actually doing the work. So when weighty things like racial injustice come to our attention. We might show up to a march, which is good. We might think about it for a while. What would it look like for you to really join in that struggle and to participate knowing full well that it is hard work? It's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take you being actively involved. Going back to Isaiah 5, verse 8, I find it somewhat troubling. Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field, basically that you would do all of this stuff so that you would live alone in the land. What's troubling to me about that is I see the American dream in that. That you would save up enough that one day, you could go live by the beach somewhere. If that's your dream, I think you need to dream bigger and better. Isaiah says, woe to you who's just thinking about this isolated version of reality that just starts with you slowly cutting off more and more people until only you are left. For me, one of the first times when I interacted with a very, very wealthy person was in college. Now, I've since realized how wealthy I am as I think about my position in the world's standards. It's important for you to realize some of that. There's a guy who I met who was extremely wealthy, or at least his dad was. My freshman year at Pepperdine, 
I was in my suite with my eight other guys who were in that dorm, and we were doing something that was very typical of people in a freshman dorm. We were having a dunk contest on our little Nerf hoop. We were all taking turns, and this one guy just comes up and does a triple axle and then dunks it. We looked at him like, where on earth did that just come from? And he said, well, actually, for a lot of my life, I did ice dancing. That was a new one for me. I haven't met anyone else who's done ice dancing. So that was pretty shocking. But that explained how he was able to do that triple axel. And later, a couple of us were walking to the cafeteria with his roommate who had grown up with him. And he said, you don't know who he is, do you? And we said, no, we have no idea. He said, look up his dad later. And we did. And it turns out he was one of the 10 richest people in the world. You can try to guess in the comments um, who he was. And his son was pretty humble, but he definitely had a way different college experience than me. After living in the freshman dorm, and I am somewhat appreciative that he chose to do that. We were in Malibu at Pepperdine. Sophomore year, he bought one beach house. And then by his senior year, he had purchased four beach houses together so he wouldn't have any neighbors to worry about. That's what comes to mind when I think of the richest person that I've ever met and what it looks like to buy up field to field to eventually find yourself in isolation. Oddly, my neighbor now works for this guy. And he told me, yeah, I feel sorry for him at times because he's had so much money and wealth and access. And Brian, I got to tell you, he doesn't necessarily seem all that happy. And I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what my neighbor said. If you live in this way, even if you have this unbelievable amount of wealth, what is it that you're doing with that to participate in creating a better world? And not just for people who are like you, how are you looking out for the oppressed, those who desperately need your wealth? and help. Isaiah says something else in Isaiah chapter five, verses one and two. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. This is a vision that Isaiah has that takes a very odd turn at the end because you hear these things, fertile soil. He worked hard. He tended to it and and made it great. He planted the choicest vineyards, but yet it yielded bad fruit. I think we are learning that some of the systems that we have in our world, especially in the U.S., are yielding bad fruit. And we've heard the term systemic racism a lot lately. I believe that is 100% a problem. But I think what creates those systems is people. Sometimes people, not necessarily aggressively, but passively, not paying enough attention. Laws are important and they're necessary. I'm glad to see some progress has been made already in changing some important laws. And I want to see more of that as we continue to move forward. Let's be honest. Satan doesn't stand back and say, oh, I can't sow hate anymore because they changed a law. This is a condition of the human heart. We all need to recognize that God's image is in all people. That we collectively 
need to fight, sure, for better laws and better structures, but we all need to check our hearts so that we can create a better world. Isaiah says all of this stuff is available. The choicest vines, fertile soil. Israel, because of who it is that you are ignoring, it's creating bad fruit. And this is what the prophets remind people of again and again. This is who you and I are called to be. People who recognize just how desperately people in our world, in our sphere of influence, need the love and hope of Jesus. During this time, as we are struggling with some of this stuff, I hope that we grieve. I hope that we call out to God. I hope that we recognize some of the ways that we are are part of the problem. I hope for some of our friends of color that you will grieve and think about how you have somehow been affected and at times like dealt with a heavier weight than some others have. But I hope that you recognize that grief can then turn into imagination that can change the world. Often it's by naming pain that we then can address it. I think of an organization like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was started in 1980 by a mom who lost a son who was killed by a drunk driver. And she could have very understandably just turned herself inward and, and been angry and been sad for her life. And she could have done that completely legitimately. But she decided to turn that anger and that frustration and that grief into a better future. And since 1980, when Mothers Against Drunk Driving was started, fatalities by drunk drivers has been cut in half. Sometimes it's in naming pain and grieving together and bringing communities together in grief. It helps us to imagine a better future. It's by naming things and articulating how we can sometimes be part of the problem that we get to envision and participate in together a better future. Isaiah says this as well. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They love all bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. We all can participate in a system where we don't care enough about those who we desperately need to care about. We can't care enough about the voice of the oppressed and those who we aren't listening to, who we need to hear. What role can you play in imagining a better future? And I know at times when you think about it, it's weighty and it's hard, but where has God put a passion in your heart and a vision for you to carry out. Perhaps you're a teacher and you want to think about how you can be part of creating solutions there. Perhaps you're somebody who's a student right now and you want to continue to think about how you can use your life and your degree to make a difference in the world. Perhaps you're retired and you have some time to think about it and think about how you could partner with these communities around you in Burbank, Glendale, and Pasadena to be part of creating a better future. I'm thankful that next week, my wife Mandy will be preaching for us on the live stream, which has taken a lot of work. And still to this day, not everybody within our church completely understands or agrees with that. And I feel you and understand that. 
But we as a church have moved in this direction because we feel like it's who God is calling us to be, to allow all voices to be able to share, to live out the call of Acts chapter two, where uh, boldness is uh, said over the people that God's prophetic word is going to pour out through sons and daughters out on to the world. And I'm so thankful that next week as Manny preaches, my daughter Nora will get to watch that. And Nora's only two, so she won't fully get it. But she's going to grow up in a church where she can think about being a preacher. To me, that's so meaningful. And it's something that's been hard. It's been hard work as a church. It's taken way more than just my effort. But I'm thankful that she will grow up in a place where that's normal. And perhaps one day she'll take over the job for me. I think she might be on track because right now we're potty training her and she grabs her trolls that she got from McDonald's and will spend 30 minutes on the potty really telling stories about the trolls. So she's already very interested in telling stories. So she might be on that track. Doesn't our world need more preachers than less? Actually, within my Within our denomination, the Churches of Christ, I know of schools that are saying there's already a severe lack of preachers, not just within our denomination, but across denominations. And the preacher search for a church used to take in the 1990s an average of three months, and now it's over a year and a half. So don't we need more preachers than less? And I'm proud that I've been part of that work, even though I knew not everybody would agree with it. But what is it that you're giving your life to that is helping a group of people who maybe were silenced to gain a voice? In the Bible, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And foolishness is described as this. It's not doing something dumb. It's intentional blindness to a reality that leads to drastic consequences for you and for others. To be a grace-filled person requires proximity with other people. To be in community with those who are unlike you and to choose over and over to forgive and then to choose over and over again to be forgiven. So during this season, I hope that we do spend some time grieving. And there's a lot to grieve during this time. I hope that as we name that pain communally, we can think about being part of a better future. We talked over a year ago in our church about the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations, at the beginning of the word, it says lament. It's an example of um, a type of calling and crying out to God. You can find lament psalms um, throughout the book of Psalms as well. But in Lamentations, there's this great verse at the very beginning, Lamentations chapter one, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by, look around and see? Is any suffering like my suffering? Is any suffering like my suffering? 
And it's so important for us at times to say that, to verbalize that, to say, is there anyone who is experiencing this like me? And at times like this, we all need to listen to our friends of colors. They tell us stories as they share their hearts, as we want to recognize that it isn't just statistics, it's people that we know and love. And in Lamentations, there's this verse Is anyone else experiencing this? Is anyone else understanding this suffering? I called out and nobody heard. May we, as we continue to walk through this season, listen to people's pain, name our own as well, and dream together how we can be part of a better future. One thing that I think we're tempted to do, instead of naming pain, is numbing it. I love this quote by A.J. Svoboda. He says, we cope. Some people cope with alcohol. Some people cope with sex. Some people cope by making kombucha. Others cope with doing endless church stuff, but we're all doing it just to get through, to escape, to cope and be numb. I think we all would recognize that there are ways that we can do that. When painful things come up, we choose whatever it happens to be, to be our way to escape. But may we, during this season, name pain and not numb it. Jesus on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, in this moment of great pain, scripture tells us this, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. He's in this horrifically painful moment, one that you can hardly even imagine. And they give him this mixture, which would have numbed it just a little bit. And he turns it down. Jesus is not anti-drinking responsibly. His first miracle, he turns water into wine and it's around 180 gallons of wine. So he's the DJ of the party and he keeps it going. So I think he's not against responsible drinking, but I think he is against drinking or any sort of coping mechanism when you're walking through painful things. Because instead of naming pain, we can choose to numb it to our detriment. And as we learn some painful things about our country, about ourselves, may we choose not to numb ourselves. May we hear the prophets who say, yes, there are things that you need to improve on, but please do it. Choose to participate in what God is doing in you and through you. Use the gifts that God has given you. Yes, there's some bad fruit that is being produced, but let's produce better fruit together. I think of John Perkins. Here's his picture right here. He's been a pastor at a church in in Mississippi for almost 50 years. He and the 1960s was involved in the civil rights movement. In 1969, he was part of a a group that actually boycotted white businesses to support black businesses in his town. And this upset those who were in charge and in power. In the 1970s, during a march, he was arrested. And while in prison, he was beaten regularly by white police officers. And he emerged from that jail a changed person, but not perhaps in the way that you would think. 
He said this, or it was said about him, remarkably Perkins emerged from this terrible experience with a commitment to his vision of holistic ministry. One that saw the bondage of racism inflicted on whites, as well as the damage and deprivation of the black community. Just like the mom who lost her son to a drunk driver, he could have spent his entire rest of his life angry and bitter and be completely justified. He chose to see how racism didn't just hurt and affect black people, but how it also affected white people. And it has caused him to live an entire life and minister out of reconciliation. And now he says it's interesting because in the 70s, he was considered a fugitive and jailed. And there was that one time that he was in prison and beaten. There were other times when he was arrested. So for the beginning of his life and ministry, he was considered a fugitive. But now he says he speaks to rooms of adoring people who want to hear from him. And he's thankful for that. But he said in a speech recently, I'm really thankful for that and thankful for the opportunity that people have given me to hear my voice and hear my story. Let me tell you, I don't let that praise get to my head though, because no standing ovation has ever bought a house for a poor person. And no loud cheering has ever fed a hungry belly. That has been John Perkins' life mission. May we be the same. May we recognize that God has given us certain gifts and we can't just stand idly by and, and sit on the sideline and be non-racist over here in the corner, but God has called us to enter in creatively with our passions and our gifts to think about how we can be a voice for the oppressed, how we can truly live out the calling of Jesus that is in the prophets as well to be people who don't numb pain, but name it and creatively think about how we can be part of the solution because we have work to do, but may we do it together. May we dream bigger than just dreaming about one day escaping our lives to this one ideal place by all that we can save and living in isolation. May we dream about how we can be part of God's good world and bringing heaven to earth now. Because all the clapping and all the standing ovations in the world doesn't give a house to a poor person. It doesn't feed somebody who needs food. May we recognize that that is our calling, who the prophets and Jesus call us to be. Let's pray. God, as we think about 2020, at times it is truly overwhelming. And may we choose in this time to not numb our pain, but to truly ask of ourselves how we can be part of a solution, how we could be part of bringing a better future to your world. May we recognize this time of grief and naming pain as an opportunity for imagination to spring forward. And may we think about the different ways that you have gifted all of us 
to be your people in the world. May we seek with our lives to give houses to the poor, to feed those who are starving, because that's who you call us to be. Your son, Jesus, name I pray. Amen.